Um, I think it should be safely uh, decontaminated by the time you pick it up. So, uh, what else? Are we good to go back there? It was funny last week. I was sitting at home and it was 6:30. Then it was 6:31. I'm like, "Uh oh, what happened? What's going on? Why are we not live?" <laughs> uh, so. Uh, Let's open with a word of prayer, and then um, we'll get into the text. Uh, If you weren't here last week, I'll get you into a group. Um, Those of you that were here last week, we're going to do some uh, joining together. Uh, It's going to be, how would I say this? What would the words be? Fluid situation, uh, unprecedented times, all those things. Be ready to pivot. Uh, So we're going to just kind of roll with it as we go um, throughout the year. Part of it is we want to have a sufficient number of people so that there's reasonable conversation. Uh, We want to keep things uh, as responsible as possible. So we're not going to put you in a group with like two other people. That gets really awkward really quick. So we'll try and uh, join people together as we go and um, yeah, go from there. Heard last week the men had kind of a draft so good on you for that. If you were drafted into the wrong team, I'm sorry. Um, maybe you could fake injury and then go to a different group. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come uh, to you this evening, and it is, uh, it is truly a treasure to be here and to be present uh, and to be gathered. It is an amazing thing that we can be gathered uh, wherever we're at as well via technology, and that is also a gift that we are grateful for, and so we don't, uh, we don't want to take any of this for granted, and we thank you for this time, and as we look at this letter from John, we pray that your spirit would uh, guide us in to the light and that we would be sustained in living in the light as you call us to be there with you, and we just pray. We pray for the discussions that we have. We pray that our hearts and minds would be open to to your word and to your instruction, and we acknowledge that we, we can struggle with that, and so we pray that we don't, and when we do, that you would be there to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, uh, John did a masterful job of getting us introduced to the book of 1 John, and I know there was a lot of jumping around, going back and forth, various verses. Um, Part of why I chose 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John is remembering back to a few years ago. What was that, two, three years ago when we did John? Was that two years ago? Do you remember, Tom? What? Don't you remember? We've never done the book of John. We did all the I am statements. Am I just, did I dream this? Yeah, that's what I meant. When did we do the? Yeah. Yes, thank you. I was like, have I just been in quarantine for way too long? I, uh, yes, okay. We did the Gospel of John recently. I thought it would uh, fit well together, so um, that's partly why we picked this, uh, this here, this letter. So as we uh, uh, maybe are not aware, but are aware that this is a letter that John is writing uh, to a group of folks, most likely in the region of Ephesus. 
Um, so let's get into it. What I will say is that the first sentence of the letter is the first three verses. So he starts off with this great long sentence. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That which was from the beginning. So if you uh, so desire, um, you could flip to the Gospel of John and I don't think we have to flip to the the first book of the Bible, Genesis, but Genesis starts about the beginning, in the beginning. John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, and he starts his letter, that which was from the beginning. So I had thought about um, diagramming the sentence, because I thought, what's more fun than diagramming a significantly long sentence? Um, I think quarantine for, quarantining for 14 days is is maybe slightly above diagramming a sentence that is this long or diagramming any sentence, for that matter. Can I get an amen? Diagramming is, I believe, um, part of the fall of man. But he starts out with that which was from the beginning, which, which is this homage to or hearken back to not only Genesis, but also to the Gospel of John. Why is it important that he says that which was from the beginning? Well, part of it is when we are looking at this concept of first things, is this existed before anything else existed. So when he says that which was from the beginning, that's what he's trying to convey. This is not something that's been created. This is not something that has just come about. This is not a creation of man. Again, we're going to be talking about all these different uh, heresies that were uh, going around that John is writing against. And he's saying, this is not some new trend. This is not some new fad. This is not something that, that, like I said, just came about. This, what we're talking about, this thing is from the beginning. And when we talk in philosophical terms, there's this concept of you know, is this a dependent being? Is this concept dependent on something else? The answer would be no. This is God that we're talking about. And that's why we are saying this existed before everything else existed. And then he gets into these sensory words, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he repeats himself over and over and over repeating these sensory words. And it, it brings up this question of uh, how do we know what we know? So how do you know what you know? That it's this concept of epistemology. It's this 
what do I know, and how did I come to know that thing? Well, what is one of the great ways to know something? It's through our sensory experience. And John is playing on that and saying, this isn't something that I just heard about. This isn't something that somebody told me third, fourth hand, or even second hand. And this group that he is writing on behalf of, it's interesting because there's all of this debate and discussion around the we. If John is the one that's writing the letter, who is the we? And I think one of the best examples of it is, of explaining and understanding this is, you know, like, like this last Sunday, right? After uh, church was over, um, we lost, <laughs> right? Well, you guys lost, the Vikings looked terrible, and the Falcons lost. But you say, oh yeah, how about that game we just lost? And you're like, since when did you start playing in the NFL? Well, I haven't, but like, we're part of the team. And Green Bay Packer fans are so annoying because they're like, oh yeah, we're owners of the team. You just save it. Like, you don't own the team. Yeah, but I have season tickets, so that makes, we own, okay, whatever. This concept of this collective we, do you ever, you ever use that? Like Jamie could say, oh yeah, we brought you some banana bread. I'm like, no, your wife made it and brought it to my house. You did nothing. No, but we did it. No, you didn't. It's a collective we. You ever use that phrase? I use that phrase on a regular basis. We did this thing together, even though it's one person doing it and the other person taking credit for it. So in that sense... It isn't, well, it's a collection of people that are writing this letter. John is writing this letter, and he's using this we as this collective we, and it's not just muddying the waters of what he is experiencing. But he talks in these terms of touching and hearing and experiencing, and it's, it's a fascinating uh, description of how he looks at it. Because when he talks in these terms, he uses language in such a way that it isn't, like when he says, we look at it. When you say, I looked at something, it's more of a glancing thing. I, I looked at it, and it's just like, oh, there it was, and it was gone. But the language that John is using in this sense is as one commentator says, to behold intelligently so as to grasp the meaning and significance of that which comes from within our vision. So when he says that we looked at it, it was not just, oh, I saw that thing, but I looked at it in a a deeper way. I held it in such a way as to grasp the meaning and significance. Because there's a lot of people, obviously, that saw Jesus, that, that saw what Jesus did, but they didn't look at him in the way that it caused any sort of change. And some of you, I don't know if you've ever seen the video, it's absolutely hilarious, and this guy repeatedly says, just look at it, look at it. Anyone seen that? Yes, Erica's like, yes. It's hilarious. 
Even though my dad sent it to me, which he doesn't always send me the funniest things, I was like, okay, that's funny. I get that. Likewise, when he uses this, this word, this verb for touch, it's a slightly uh, different verb tense, and it's talking about something that was in the past. These other things are in the present tense, and they're in this experiential, continual sense, but he makes a, a clear case that what they touched was something that happened back then that they cannot touch now because obviously Jesus has been uh, resurrected and is no longer physically there. So he wants to make that interesting distinction. And when we think about these things in our lives and the importance of our, our key faculties, you think about the experiences that you have had in your life and somebody can explain that experience to you and you can think that you know what they're talking about based on the explanation or based on a, a photo or a video or somebody's um, personal experience. But until you experience it in the same way, you don't fully grasp what they're talking about. For example, we can talk about uh, what it's like to a young person uh, about having uh, their, their child. And I can't remember where Nikki and I, we, where we just were. Oh yeah, we were in the emergency room. That's where we were. And <laughs> the, do- the nurse was like, oh, you guys can't have kids that old. I'm like, it's because I have this mask on. I look much older in person without my mask on. And I'll never forget when I held both of my kids for the first time, and you can, you can hear from people, oh, it's going to change your life. It's the most incredible experience. And you're like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. And then you hold that baby for the first time, and you're like, my life is forever changed. Not because you have to take care of this thing, but you're like, oh, my word, this is, a, this is incredible. That is what John is talking about. The importance of what he is saying is, this isn't just something I read someplace and want to tell you about. This is, I have firsthand knowledge and experience, and because of what I have experienced in Jesus Christ, I want to proclaim it to you, and I want to testify to you about this thing that I'm talking about. Where he throws us the curveball is he says, and testify to you and proclaim to you, we're expecting him to talk about the word, as he does in the Gospel of John. We're maybe even thinking he's going to say Jesus. And no, he says, the eternal life, which is a key theme that we're going to talk about throughout the book of 1 John, and this assurance of eternal life. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And you see this interesting thing going on around, okay, when he says eternal life, is he talking about exactly eternal life or is an allusion to who Jesus is and what Jesus offers to them through his death and resurrection? Because when he says it was with the Father, okay, this is even more language when he's like he's using at the beginning of the Gospel of John talking about Jesus. When he's talking about made manifest to us the incarnation coming to be with them. But he uses this word eternal life because he wants to drive that point home. 
And why is he proclaiming these things to them? In uh, verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship. And John talked about it a couple weeks ago, and this concept, this word koinonia in the Greek is to share in common. And what I want us to think about when we think about this concept of fellowship is that fellowship in this way is a very specific thing. Shared between uh, people who have something very much in common, i.e. a relationship with Jesus Christ, and how the importance of fellowship to John is not only vertical, but or vertical, but also horizontal. Because there is a big uh, heresy and, and misinformation going around at that time about you don't need to ha- relate or, or uh, have fellowship with other people. You only have to have fellowship with God. And John wants to make it very clear that the fellowship that you experience with other human beings, other Christ followers, is just as important as your relationship and your fellowship with God. And in fact, you can't have fellowship with God without having fellowship with other people. And likewise, you can't have fellowship with other people without having fellowship with God. It is this peculiar Trinitarian-type experience. And so often, when we think about this concept of fellowship... What's the first thing that we think about? Thank you. Potlucks. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. If we were playing Family Feud, number one answer, 97% of Midwestern Christians say potlucks. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who goes to Lutheran Church of the Cross on Sunday, and he, he was saying, yeah, we can't have fellowship at our church on Sundays because of COVID. Are you having fellowship at your church? And I was like, well, I think we are. But what he meant was, are you having coffee and donuts? <laughs> and we have so eroded the value and importance of this word by equating it simply with sharing food with one another. The problem with that is we share food with people on a very regular basis who are not followers of Jesus Christ, and that is not fellowship. You can't have fellowship with somebody who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. Likewise, if you are not having fellowship with your fellow believers... John is saying you can't have fellowship with God because it is so important. And one thing that comes out throughout the book of 1 John or the letter of 1 John is the reason why you're having problems with your relationship with me is because you're having problems with your relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Your fellowship is broken on an earthly sense. Therefore, your fellowship on a heavenly sense is also broken. We have to understand the importance of this concept of fellowship. We can't have a relationship that is complete with 
Jesus Christ if we are not having fellowship with fellow followers of Jesus Christ. That is John's case that he's trying to make. The importance of the fellowship with each other is of utmost importance. And that changes completely how we do things because if we are not in fellowship with one another, if we have a break in our fellowship with fellow followers of Jesus Christ, and we see that as a true challenge that we face with God, we're going to see this relationship a lot differently. To say that differently, if I have a conflict with a fellow, fellow follower of Jesus Christ, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and I have broken that unity with them, now I have a problem with God. But so often we think this worldly fellowship is subsidiary to my relationship with God. And that was what was persisting at the time. As long as I'm right with God, it doesn't matter how I relate to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to realize that John is writing against that then, and we, we need to take this thing, okay? This letter was written to a specific group of people. And he is saying, take this concept that was written so long ago, and ask yourself, where does it apply to me in my life today? And we say, do we have a break in our relationship with a fellow brother or sister in Christ on a global sense? And if so, we need to repair that. Or we have a problem with God. And it's a very challenging thing. Likewise, if we have a problem with our relationship with the Lord, we're going to have a problem with our relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we are all one body and there is a break in the body, then the whole body is going to suffer. I think I read that someplace in here or something. So he's writing these things, he's proclaiming these things so that you too may have fellowship with us. Okay? Don't miss that. He doesn't say we're writing these things so that you may have fellowship with God. That's not where he starts. He says we're writing these things so that you may have fellowship with us. That's just as important as the fellowship that they are having with uh, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, and in addition to, we are writing these things. The reason, here is reason number one why they're writing, why John is writing this letter to his people. So that hour, again, we are like, oh, who's the hour? It's a collective hour. So that our joy may be complete. Such a simple phrase, and it is so mind-boggling to some degree. Now, the ESV does a terrible job of using this word complete. Most commentators say completion, using the word complete is inappropriate for the Greek. It is the concept of fullness. It's not about completion. It's about fullness. So I use the example this afternoon. Um, when you fill up your gas tank, hello, um, you don't say, 
my gas tank is now complete. I can now drive to infinity or as long as I desire. No, you have filled your gas tank for a finite amount of time and there will be a time when your gas tank will not be full. And we know that I am well aware of this experience. And so when we think of it in those terms, we ask ourselves, at what point is my joy full? Not when is my joy complete, as in it, will, it is now and forever, because we know our joy is not complete or done until our earthly life is over. So when we think about it in a fullness measure, we can ask ourselves, when do I experience the fullness of joy in my life? So when do I experience joy to its fullest extent? Now, it's, yes, at death. And I would say, okay, you experience joy at death to its fullest. Okay, so when do I get to experience joy to its seventh, seven eighthest or fifteen sixteenthest? <laughs> because that is a, what we have to say is when, if we re- relinquish our theology to I won't experience joy to its fullest level here on earth, life is kind of bleak. And Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come so that you may have not only have life, but have life abundantly. And so, to say, I can experience a full level of joy, not a completed level of joy, but a full level of joy is optimistic. And when we think of joy on the sliding scale, we say, I'm experiencing joy today, but I'm certainly not experiencing joy to the level that I would like to. <laughs> I mean, can I get an amen through our mask? Like, hello. Like, <laughs> right? Like, and what I would say is, we have to know what that is for us. Because if we don't know what that is for us, then we don't know how to pursue that. You say, well, I have joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Yeah, thank you. It's a sing-along, which props uh, to you, Katie. I was at home saying, DC Talk, come on! I mean, Phil, were you not here? That's the way I feel with Bible baffle. I don't want to call in. I already know this answer. I mean, anyone could get this, but I don't want to just keep down. I, how many CDs can I get? Um, we have joy because it is a fruit of the Spirit. And what John is saying here is, I am writing these things because my joy right now is not complete or full, is the better term that we've been talking about. And so what he is about to say is how his joy will be filled up to its max. When the people that he is writing to live out this life that he is calling them to, 
they will experience joy and he will experience joy in, in a full measure. So I've been, I've been pressing people in, in our lunch group and then just in our leader meeting to, to f- complete this phrase. I experience joy to the full when dot, 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 you fill that in for yourself. Think about it. Think about it. I can tell you what is not fullness of joy, and that is sitting at home for 14 days and watching your wife be deathly sick. This is the message we have heard, again, talking about these words, these experiences, these sensory experiences. This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what is this message that they are proclaiming? It's not only eternal eternal life, but it is the fact that God is light. Now, what we have to be aware of is there's no definite article or any sort of differentiating around this idea of light. So it doesn't say God is the light. It doesn't say God has light. It doesn't say God is a light. John is making a declarative statement about who God is in his very essence, and it is this concept of light. And we're going to be talking about this throughout uh, this fall of light and darkness and these contrasts. God is light. In his very essence, he is light. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then he follows it up by saying the negative. He says, and in him is no darkness at all. Why would he say that? Because he's trying to drive home the point that God is the absence of darkness. He is light And there is no darkness in any way that exists in him. It's a little bit like when I say, uh, I am a husband, I am not a bachelor. By definition, the word husband is married man, and by definition, bachelor is unmarried man. Am I getting too philosophical for you? So, John wants to make it clear God is light, and to say it negatively, he's not darkness. <laughs> In him, there is no darkness at all. And then he gets back to this concept of fellowship. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
So we have this other contrast of truth and lies. So light, truth, darkness, lies. We're going to talk a lot about this this thing called living out our faith. And one thing that I want us to be very much aware of is we're not going to talk about this concept of sin management. We're not going to talk about um, you know, this, this role of living a pious life because that's very easily where this tre- trends to. He lays it out simply and says, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but we live in darkness, we are a liar. <laughs> We are not telling the truth. So what is the immediate thing that you want to ask? Well, what does it look like to live in darkness? Great question. Because <laughs> if I know what it looks like to live in darkness, I don't want to do that. Because if I'm doing that and claiming to be in fellowship with God, I am a liar and nobody likes that. You know, it gets back to this concept. I'm not a big fan of binaries, but one thing we're going to get into a lot is these John binaries, like liar, bad. I'm not bad. Therefore, I don't want to be a liar. Okay? Telling the truth, good. I'm good, therefore I tell the truth. Do we? Light and darkness is this binary. Here's your choice, light or darkness. What would you like? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you've ever wondered what the importance of fellowship is, it is right here. If we are walking in a way that is consistent with the call of Jesus Christ in our lives, walking in the light, walking with God, then we get to have this fellowship because walking in the light is having fellowship is is required, or living walking in the light is required to have fellowship. And if I have fellowship, then what do I have? Forgiveness of sins. Sign me up. When we have fellowship with one another, which we do not expect this, right? We would say, if we have fellowship with God, then our sins are forgiven. But John says, no, when we have fellowship with one another, then we experience the cleansing of our sins. But if we inappropriately rip off the Bible, which I know it's a hard concept to think about, but I've heard people say that it happens. Maybe on the internet. I'm not sure. We miss out on the walking in the light. That is what occurs first. If we walk in the light, if we walk in a relationship with the God of the universe, if we mimic what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we have fellowship with one another and our sins are forgiven. And you're like, we better get that coffee back, (laughs) right? 
I mean, our, our fellowship is really hindered by not having this coffee. The coffee has nothing to do with it. So we get around this concept of light and darkness and what does it mean to live in the light and what does it mean to live in darkness and I don't want to live in darkness so I must live in the light but if I don't know how to do that, am I doing that? And, and, we, and we're like, we, uh, just, just tell me what to do. <laughs> just give me a list, tell me what to do, I'll do it. Not that easy. Because then he follows it and he says, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says it in a variety of ways. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, he is writing to these heresies that existed at the time and one of them was, I have no sin. Sin, it, it's not a problem. I don't have any. Like, uh, how would I put that in today's terms? I'm a good person. Like, why do I need to talk about these things? So this belief existed that these people did not have sin. And so you don't, you don't need Jesus. And what John is saying, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar. Well, I'm a good person. How could I be a liar? Well, if you're a good person, then you would admit where you have challenges. And he says, if we say we have not sinned, so the previous sin is, I don't sin. Like, I'm perfect. I don't sin. And the next one is, I have never sinned. Well, most of us would say, of course I've sinned, but today I have arrived at a place where I no longer sin. That's a problem. So these two heresies of, I have never sinned, verse 10, and I don't currently sin, verse 8, are both issues that John is wrestling with. Because if we say we have never sinned, we say that God is lying because there are numerous verses, in Paul's writings in particular, that say all have sinned. So if you say you have not sinned, then you're saying that God's word is false, that he's a liar, and now you have a bigger problem on your hands. And if you say that you don't currently sin, you're saying you're perfect, and Let's be honest, you're not telling the truth. And then we get this middle sentence that is the crux of it all. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's where we want to start, right? We have this problem that exists, and I talked about it uh, like a month ago, in Western Protestant Christianity, where we have swung the pendulum so far away from uh, what was experienced in the Catholic Church, where we don't want to talk about this concept of confession. 
when I gave that sermon, my friend was watching online, and she said, if I squinted slightly and tilted my head, it almost sounded like you were Catholic. And I was like, oh. It's amazing when we read the Bible, what happens? When we just say the words that are on the page, what happens? John says, if we confess our sins, we can't miss that. If you don't confess your sins, if we don't confess our sins, if I don't confess my sins, I'm not forgiven. If we confess our sins, and we push so hard against this concept of confession, that's a Catholic thing. No, it's a Bible thing. Confessing our sins to God is a biblical thing. And he says, faithful and just, which is peculiar. Because the whole concept of sin is that we are not right with God. So how is it that God forgiving our sins is a just move? How is it that God forgiving me, my sins, is a form of justice? Like That doesn't make sense. Sin requires punishment. Justice is equating that punishment or following through with that punishment on the person who deserves it. And that's where this whole idea of being a Christ follower is otherworldly. Our world of justice is completely different than the justice of God. And it's amazing how John tells us he is faithful. God has made us this promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's going to do it. God does not Tell a lie. He's not a liar. He is going to do what he said he's going to do. And what he's going to do is just to forgive us the things that we have done. And it's like, this doesn't make sense in a worldly context. And John says, you're right. And he doesn't just forgive us our sins, but he goes all the way and and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And it's amazing. The challenge, though, is what? We sin again. So we walk around, we're like, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Oh, forgive me, forgive me, uh, forgive me, forgive me. What does the Lord's Prayer say? It says, forgive me of my sins. So do we need to have an itemized list? No. When Jesus says, look at this person, he is the epitome of what a person seeking after me looks like. The man in the temple saying, Father, forgive me, I am a sinner. It's not complex, it's not hard, it's not a specific ritual, it's not, well, what if I forget a sin? You wake up in the middle of the night, oh, I forgot that one thing. Good thing I didn't die, whoo. God, forgive me of that one thing that I forgot, I can't remember. It's like the unspoken prayer request, right? We just lay our heads on our pillows at night and we're like, God, just forgive me of all those sins, the ones I can remember, too many to list, and the ones I can't. Probably even more to list. Let's try that again. 
So you lay your head on your pillow. Father, forgive me of the sins. We can laugh at that. Like, we're not guilty. When we ask God to forgive our sins, he forgives them. We don't have to fret over like, well, did I, did I list everything out? That's not the point. The point is, where is my heart and where is my focus and what am I trying to be more like? We talked a lot, or we talked about this during the summer class and this concept of being versus doing. And we wrestle with this, am I a sinner? Okay, that is, a, that is who I am and my being. Or do I sin? How does God see me? And if I am a sinner, I live my life in dwelling and bathing in sin, much like the pig loves to play in the mud. But as Boyce says, a growth in holiness will mean a growth in true sensitivity to sin in one's life and in intense desire to eliminate from life all that displeases God. So rather than getting caught up in like, oh, did I ask for forgiveness from all these specific sins? Okay, good. We have to say, is my face oriented towards Jesus Christ? And am I trying to live in such a way that guides me towards him, guides me towards the light, and what I desire is to sin less and less and live more and more for him. Yes. If we don't have examination, how can we have transformation? Um, what I would say is I'm not advocating for not specifically confessing our sins. What I'm saying is when we get so wrapped up in evaluating our sin bank, we get so in the weeds and we're like, oh, I don't know. Did God forgive me? Did I confess that one thing? That I did? Did I do that? I can't remember. We get, we're so in the weeds that we don't live. We don't live. And John isn't trying to get, a, get us to this place where all we do is focus on our sin. What he wants us to focus on is the forgiveness of our sins. And, and in this case, he's saying, if you say that you're not that you're not currently sinning, you're lying. And if you say that you never sin, God's a liar. Either way, you're wrong. So rather than focusing you know, on this concept of you know, self-evaluating down to the minuscule detail of confession, because oftentimes I don't think that's our problem, 
and we're going to get to we're going to get back to this again. A lot of these concepts are going to keep coming back. So I could go further into this, but then I'm going to bury the lead on, and then we're just going to we're going to run out of content. And then we're just going to sit here and be like, well, what should we talk about now? Vikings are still losing. Yep, maybe they'll get a good draft pick. So yes, please don't hear me in the way that. Specific confession is not important. It is important. But if we become crippled by thinking we haven't confessed all of our sins in specificity, that God's not going to forgive us, I think we should reevaluate how we view God and how we view his forgiveness. And it circles back to the importance of how does fellowship play within this whole sphere? Because when I'm fellowshipping with people of the light, that are in the light, which is the only people that fellowship can ha- you can have with, if I'm doing life with other followers of Jesus Christ, and they keep seeing me do the same thing over and over, they're going to be like, uh, I think maybe you should reevaluate what you're doing. At least that would be the hope. Instead, we brush it aside and we move away and then we don't ever deal with it. So part of what I'm trying to say is a bit of a self-correction against our aversion to confession. I think it's important to, to, to be specific in our confession, um, but I don't think that we should question whether or not we're forgiven based on specificity. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, okay. So last week, we divided up into... Uh, you can turn... Thank you for joining us. If you want... Did you already turn it off? If you want to join us virtually on a discussion group, please let me know. Email me. Uh, text me, call the office, get my email correctly, otherwise I won't get the email. So, um, thank you. Uh, For those of us who were here last week, you can go ahead and go to your groups. Um, For those of you who are planning on staying for the discussion that are not in a group, you can come up front here. For those of you who um, are leaving because you don't want to be in a discussion group, no judgment. Truly, no judgment, um, but I don't want to put you in a group and then have you walk out the door anyways. So those of you who are in groups, go to your groups. Those of you who are not in a group that want to be in a group, come forward and I'll put you in a group.